Good morning. Okay, so uh, some of you may be fans of the Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, Sherlock, right? You may have heard of him. Um, you, if you know that series at all, the, his, his writings, uh, you know that Sherlock's arch nemesis was a guy named Jim Moriarty, a, a brilliant but fiendish person. Um, uh, some of you may have caught the, the BBC uh, rendering of Sherlock over the last several years with uh, Benedict Cumberbatch playing Sherlock and this wonderful Irish actor whose name escapes me playing Jim Moriarty. And uh, if you're following that along, you know that they, they parallel in many ways the way Sir Arthur Conan Doyle unpacks that storyline. And so at some point, Moriarty dies. Sorry, spoiler alert, but you had plenty of time. It's not my problem. But, but later on, as a point of masterful storytelling, Jim Moriarty ostensibly has come back from the dead. And in that last season of the whole series, he emerges from a helicopter with all this brilliant, demonic grandeur that we're all accustomed uh, to seeing him sort of um, parade around uh, in, every, in, all the, in all the tricks and uh, tragedies he seeks to wreak. But um, in that moment, um, the reason I even recall it is because there's a song that's going on underneath it as he emerges from the helicopter. And it's uh, no less than Freddie Mercury from Queen saying, I want to break free, right? And so the first stanza of the lyrics, I want to break free. I want to break free. I want to break free from your lies. You're so self-satisfied. I don't need you. I want to break free. God knows. God knows I want to break free. And that song is just a, another silly love song, Mr. McCartney. It's just another silly love song, right? Ha <laughs> Because that song is about somebody who has found a love that's real and true and nourishing, and yet they cannot escape the gravitational pull of this, this love that was demeaning and disparaging, that, that love that they want to break free from. They, they know what's nourishing. They know what they need, but they but they just can't shake the habit of what they used to have that they know they need to break free from. And so that, that silly love song, I think, is in some ways emblematic of the human condition. That you and I have an intuitive sense, more often than not, of some better, more nourishing way that we know that we need, but we can't break free of those former things that we love, that we it's all we know, that we're sort of enmeshed in, and we're just... We're stuck. We want to break free. If that's not your story, that's my story. That's my story now. I, I would like to break free from being an impetuous soul most times. I would like to break free from being an irritable father. I would like to break free from being anxious about trifling things. I would like to break free from the kind of self-absorption that keeps me from just being free to love people. Just being sacrificial. And then... I want to break free from all of that, but then I, I also want to break free from my natural inclination that when I begin to reckon with all those things I want to break free from, it's more a turn to despair that I will never escape that. I want to break free from that response. I want to break free. That's my list. I bet you got one too. We all want to break free. We all want to find that better place. And we don't want to despair when we find ourselves having to retrace our steps more often than not. There is a film that came out several years ago by Terrence Malick called The Tree of Life. 
If there's ever a movie that's worthy of a film discussion on a Sunday afternoon with believers and non-believers alike, it's that wonderful film called The Tree of Life with Brad Pitt and Sean Penn and Jessica Chastain. And early in that film, the mother of this family that grows up in 1950s Waco, Texas, she kind of concedes something that she learned from the nuns she went to Catholic school from, something that sort of forms the, the sort of the framework of the whole story. And And listen to what the mother of this family says about there's two kinds of ways to live in this world. There are two ways through life. The way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. Grace doesn't try to please itself. Accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked. Accepts insults and injuries. She contrasts two very different ways of working and living. One that she finds at work in nature, which seeks its own end, which is always seeking to encroach and survive and thrive, whether it's at the expense of other things or not. And and though uh, the movie in no ways tries to throw nature under the bus, in some ways Terrence Malick is trying to uplift the glory of creation and all of nature. Uh, nevertheless, the way nature works by default is in contrast to the way of grace, as you might have heard her say. And so she speaks of this way of grace that, if you hear it, it's, it's a way of freedom. It is not being bound by being slighted. It is, it is always looking for a way to, to give, to, to be thankful, to see the shining brilliance of everything around, rather than being constrained by your own way of self-absorption. And that is the way of grace. And therefore, I am making this a more extended introduction because this series that we're about to get into, to listen to Paul's letter to the churches of Galatia, is to speak of this way of grace. And to speak of how that way of grace is the way to freedom. The way to break free is to walk in that way of grace. To realize that everything is a gift. And that until we see it as a gift, and not something we have to fight and claw for, we will feel constrained and we will abide by the way the rest of nature does. We want to listen to the way of grace from a letter of Paul, the earliest document we have of the New Testament. You're going to hear that idea of freedom and being free throughout the, throughout the series. And so we have... Um, you know, brilliantly come up with a title for the series called Free. 
which I know you can appreciate from my uncharacteristic brevity. (laughs) This series wants to ask ourselves the question, is it true that what has come to us in Jesus comes to us freely? That there are no conditions upon which we might be able to really claim to it? Is that really true? Is it really free? And if it is free, what does it free us from? And if we're not only freed from something, but freed for something, what are all those things we're freed for? That's why we're calling it free, because the whole letter is about that idea of freedom. We speak of this extended introduction just to to inform you or introduce you to the whole series itself, but also to, to reckon with this fact. Friends, those of you that joined the church in 2017, you are now in the 25th year of this church's existence. This church was birthed by grace through faith on the freedom that comes to us in Jesus. It is nurtured, that idea of grace. It is even named itself grace. And so it's proper, I think, that we go back to the most concentrated form, grasp of words that speak to that nature of grace that leads to our freedom. This morning, we're going to listen just to the first nine verses of this letter. An introduction of all introductions that is... uh, Just cut to the chase. It's pretty pointed and in your face of those to whom Paul is writing. But what we're going to find in these nine verses are, I think, three things that make us believe that, in fact, this gospel is, in fact, both free and freeing. Three things we learn about it. One, that it is unequivocally divine. Two, that it is eminently relevant. And three, that it is utterly unique. Unequivocally divine. Eminently relevant. And utterly unique. This morning, we have a special guest to read our sermon passage. It's a dear friend from Texas and a former parishioner in Texas. Her name is Rachel, and she was the best babysitter we ever had. If you are able, I wonder if you might stand as she comes forward to read the first nine verses from Galatians chapter 1. Galatians 1, verses 1 through 9. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The remarkableness of how Paul starts his letter can only be understood when you compare it to the other ways in which Paul starts letters to other churches. There's a particular tone in his letter. It usually begins with a, hey, it's me, Paul, and hi, folks. Good to see you again, or good to speak to you again. And then he will utter, usually in his letters, a prayer of thanksgiving for them. But in this one, it's a different tone. 
um, it really starts off pretty pointed and in your face. And in the very first verse, he's not just greeting them, he's making an argument. When he says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He's out to make a point, not just extend a greeting. It's not a throwaway line. He's making an argument because he's writing into a particular situation. He wasn't just bored and thought, you know what, I haven't talked to the Galatians in a while. Let me write to them. No, it's because of what he's heard. Through the first century grapevine, he has come to hear that there are some other voices that have come to compete with what he has already come to share with them and upon which that church, those churches were planted and built. When you send your kids to school, inevitably you come to discover that they are under the influence of some other voices that you then become in competition with. And you have to speak carefully and you have to draw out clearly. Now, what is it they told you? They told you to put what where? No, 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 no. You have to speak into that condition. That is what Paul is up to here. He is speaking to the Galatians like a parent does to their children because he is concerned that they are starting to bite on ideas that sound a lot like truth, but which Paul is out to say it could not be more toxic. He is out to make an argument. And so in that very first verse, he is there to say, look, I have come to you, and what I have brought to you is the unequivocal consequence of something not of human initiative, but entirely of divine origin. I was sent. The word apostle means, apostello means one who is sent. And he is there to say, I didn't send myself. I wasn't sent from a bunch of people. I was sent from God. The reason that you and I might actually come to believe that the gospel of which Paul proclaims actually is free and freeing is because we believe that it comes to us heaven-sent, that it comes to us by divine origin. It's unequivocally divine. And at this point, i got to take full stop and sit on this for just a second in verse 1. Because I know full well that when you hear somebody say, I've been sent from God, If they say that at Sierra Nevada this afternoon, you're all going to say, I think you've had one too many narwhals. You know that's 9.8%. Usually when somebody says they're on a mission from God, the first thing they think is these guys. Jake, Elwood, they might have been in the bidding of that nunnery that's trying to keep that orphanage open but you hear them say on a number of occasions we're on a mission from god and we're wearing sunglasses hit it look that's the air we breathe that's the parody of that cult classic the blues brothers you're on a mission from god really the world in which you and i swim is characterized by a Canadian philosopher by the name of Charles Taylor as one who exists in what he calls a world of cross pressures. Meaning that 500 years ago, you walk around, you would would be hard-pressed to find anybody that didn't believe in a god or gods. But now you walk around town in Asheville, in Austin, in Waco, in DeSoto, wherever you might be, And it will be easy to find at least several people who say, if you ask them, do you believe in God? They say, you know what, I don't think so. 
And yet when Charles Taylor says, we live in a world of cross pressures, it's those same people who believe in God, who at times realize that their faith feels kind of fragile because they know that for every belief they may have about their version of God, there are 30 other people in their neighborhood who have very different beliefs or no belief at all. And so your belief is contestable, as he puts it. And you kind of feel out in the open. You kind of feel exposed. You kind of feel like, oh, Paul, you're sent from God. You sound more like Jake and Elwood than you sound like anybody I should give any credibility to. A few years ago, I'm reminded of a conversation that happened between these two guys. You may recognize them. The guy on the left, that's Richard Dawkins. The guy on the right, John Stewart, right? Formerly of The Daily Show. And several years ago, um, after Richard Dawkins, who is one of the self-styled new atheists, probably the most acerbic of the new atheists, who would like to say that it would be, if he had, if he was in charge, every religious person would be expunged from the planet because he thinks religious faith of any sort is just detrimental to the, to the progress of society, that he thinks the whole idea of believing anything without evidence is counterintuitive and, and, and in contrast to what reason in, requires. And, and in their very frank conversation, John Stewart kind of says, now look, you really think that, that, that all expressions of religious faith are bad for society. There is, there is no room for any religious tradition to be at work in society. And Dawkins says, no, I, I think it has no place. And then John Stewart sort of concedes, you know, I, I kind of think some religious notions, some ideas that there is a God and that people might be on mission from him has a place for nurturing the goodness of society. So long as it's not coercive, so long as it's not oppressive, So long as it doesn't think that it's the only game in town, that's kind of where Jon Stewart's coming from. That's the world that you and I are living in. Some people who think that whatever it is that we're doing here on Sunday morning is actually antithetical to the progress of humanity. Or others who think, you know what? What you're doing is nice. Just sort of keep it to yourself and, you know, do your potlucks and feed your homeless, but don't pontificate and certainly don't talk about the idea that your faith might be a way better than others. That's yours and I, my world. But back to the text at hand. Why then should you and I listen to Paul when he says, I'm an apostle sent from God. And why should we think that he's any more credible than anybody else that lights up the drum circle next Friday and says, I'm having an epiphany from God. You know, look, that's a, that's a proper a proper incredulity that you might bring to it. It is right and proper for you to ask questions like that. And you know what? The New Testament thinks so too. The New Testament tells the early church, hey, test the spirits. Think. Think about what you've heard. Think about what you know. Don't check your brain. Think about it. And even Jesus, in John chapter 7, he says, look, Do you want to know if my teaching is of my own or if it's from God? Do you want to know? Then do it. Walk in my way. And somehow you will discover whether my teaching is just something that I pulled out of my nose or if it comes from somewhere further, deeper, higher, more beautiful, and more astonishing than you could imagine. Jesus is saying to us all, think! Imagine! Weigh! Reason. 
See, when Jesus says unto us, walk in my way, he's saying, you're going to discover something. You're going to discover not only whether or not my teaching is from God, you're also going to discover that something is really going to have to transform your heart monumentally before you can ever really follow me like I'm telling you to. Why should we believe, even though the New Testament is telling us that we ought to think as we walk along our merry way, as we consider different claims of somebody coming on a mission from God with a message from God? Um, Some people will argue that, look, there are two and a half billion Christians on the planet. That's something. That's a reason to believe. And then we have sort of our snarky astronomy friend, Neil deGrasse Tyson, who on Christmas Day said, to all of you 2.5 billion Christians, Merry Christmas. To the other 5 billion of you, Happy Monday. It's kind of where he's coming from. So it's, it's an argument, but of sorts. There are others who will say, do you, do you ever think about all the stories of conversion out there? Like Paul's. Like, we're going to talk more so about Paul's conversion a little bit next week because he does himself at the end of chapter 1. And that's a, that's a compelling thing. And, and I've shared stories of people who have been converted unto an understanding of Jesus. But, but you and I also know of people who've sort of said, you know, I'm done with this. I'm de-churching. And so sometimes you've got to go back to sort of first principles. And, and there's a, an Anglican theologian and historian by the name of N.T. Wright who wrote a, a massive tome on the resurrection of Jesus, 750 pages several years ago, who said, if you just take the stories both within the New Testament and outside of it, from a historian's point of view, from a historian's point of view, whether you have any commitment to any theology or non-theology whatsoever, if you just look at it from the vantage point of history, the simplest explanation for the existence of the church was because some people really believed that this guy rose from the dead. They didn't think it was a metaphor. They didn't think it was a group hallucination because anybody that's been through a group hallucination eventually snaps out of it when they're, con- when they're having to confront the possibility that they're going to die for that belief. He makes that case. Now, modern people today will hear even the best arguments like that and say, you know what, the first century and even before that, people just did that. They, they, they took people they admired and they deified them. They turned humans whom they respected into gods and that's why we have Christianity because a lot of people were so moved by what he said and so taken by what he endured that will turn him into God. And yet, let's rewind the tape here a little bit. You ask Muhammad, if you could, are you God? He would say, what are you talking about? No! If you go to to Buddha and say, Are you divinity? He would say, that question makes no sense. Confucius would say the same thing. If you went to Moses or Abraham or Isaac or Jacob and said, I know you represent God, but are you God in the flesh? They would say, you're almost being blasphemous. So apparently it is not the instinct of humanity to necessarily and and, uh, naturally and reflexively turn humans into divinities. So for Jesus to be ascribed divinity, that's rather remarkable. Because not only do people not naturally do that, but Judaism is the last faith tradition you would ever expect somebody trying to push over on other people that there was somebody that looked like you and me that actually was God in the flesh. Now, that's a sort of an apologetic move why we might actually give reason to think that when Paul says, I'm on a mission sent from God, that it might actually be credible. You may not like the apologetic move. 
You may think the arguments are nice, but they really don't do much for me. What about experience? What about human experience that we might lead ourselves to believe that Paul is is legitimate in what he's saying? And experience is a wonderful thing and yet a, a tricky thing, right? Because a lot of people will appeal to their experience to explain their reality, and the problem is they haven't had a comprehensive experience, and therefore their reality is based upon a really narrow set of experiences. And especially in this world that likes to think that the only thing that is is this flesh, atoms, matter, material, electrons, protons, neutrons, quarks, all those things, that the world has been truncated, that the spiritual ideas are are projections of our ideals, but they're not really true. Inevitably, it's people like that who bump into things, who bump into things that confront that sort of truncated, narrowed view of reality, who, who use words like dignity and human rights and human flourishing, and they can't really ground it in anything other than their own desire that it be true. That we bump into things, experiences in our art, in our literature, in our film, in our music that make us think that, you know what, maybe there is more to this world than just the matter that surrounds me. More than just the the current events that I am continually monitoring. Maybe there's something more. Several years ago in my home state of Texas, there was a young girl whose parents were murdered. And at the funeral service, you know who she quotes? Dumbledore. And in that funeral service, she lights... This line from Dumbledore, he says, happiness can be found even in the darkest of times if only one remembers to turn on the light. What is J.K. Rowling getting out there? What is this young girl reaching for in the midst of her grief? That there might be something more to this world than just the fact that her parents are dead. That in the words of Churchill's Taylor, that this world might actually have something called fullness to it. Something that our narrowed version of reality can't account for. Francis Spufford is a British author, both prose and fiction. And he said this once in a, in a lecture that, uh, that, that, uh, that, Char- that uh, Richard Dawkins was actually present to. He said this, I've heard Richard Dawkins on a stage respond to someone asking why people's conviction of the presence of God doesn't count as data. Dawkins says, oh, all sorts of funny things happen in people's heads, but you can't measure anything. You can't measure them, so they don't mean anything. Yet atheists, like everybody else, fall in love, read novels, hum songs, and value the unrepeatable shadings of their sensory and cognitive experiences. The subjective makes its irrefutable demand for attention as soon as you quit the lectern. And that's a long way of saying... Anybody who has no place for God at some point in their lives bumps into experiences that makes them think, you know what, maybe my version of reality is too narrow. And if you and I can at least acknowledge the fact that there are times where we will bump into experiences and come across things for which are simple explanations that were just well-developed mammals And that reality is one just remarkable, random occurrence. When we discover that there might be something more to it, then it is not nuts for you and I to think that when Paul says, I'm sent from God, that he might very well be true. I have to say that here on the very front end of our time together because everything else rests upon the nation that God is alive and at work and that he is worthy of being trusted. 
The reason that this world, that this gospel might be free and it might be freeing is because it's divine. And if it's divine, it means it's also relevant. Now, relevant is a tricky word. It's sort of an anachronistic term. It, uh, Paul's not out to be relevant. When I mean that the gospel of freedom is relevant, I mean it just speaks to our condition. And what is our condition? The gospel is relevant to our condition because it speaks of what we most want. It speaks of peace. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a very typical introduction of his letters. But folks, don't resist the temptation to consider those as throwaway lines. They're potent. And he will spend the rest of the letter unpacking them. Peace is what you and I most want. We want poise. We want stability. Even our quests for glory in this life, what are they really out for? They're really out to find this inner kind of peace that says, it's okay. I'm okay. I am one with reality. And yet you and I know that no matter how much we want this peace, we find it exasperatingly elusive. We want it. Maybe we get it for a moment and it doesn't stay. And then what's worse is we compound the problem by all of our errors. We push it off. And then we don't have peace. Oh, it's relevant. Oh, the gospel is relevant because it's out to bring us peace. Paul is here to say, I come with news. News that is a measure of peace. Not a generic peace. Not just sort of this generic nebulous well-being. I just feel good because I have this you know, steady alpha wave in my brain. A peace that centers on the notion that you are beloved of God. It's relevant because it's what we most want. We most want peace. But it's relevant because of how we get that peace. Because if Paul were to come to us and say, you want peace, here's how you're going to do it. That peace would be no peace. Because if we could get that peace by just another litany of things we ought to be doing, that's not a recipe for peace. The reason it's relevant is that this peace comes to us by a wholly different mean and mode, and it's because this peace comes to us by grace. Grace is free. It lies outside of our control to obtain it, and therefore this peace that comes to us in the gospel is granted to us, it's given to us, it's gifted to us. You and I want to obtain it, we want to have control for it, but we can't control the peace that he means to come give us. And so there's a Lutheran theologian by the name of Gerhard Ford that said this, God has acted finally in this very proclamation by his apostles to have his way with us. God has taken the whole business out of our hands, neither your lawlessness nor your lawfulness, your immorality nor your morality, your unholiness nor your holiness. None of it matters a bit now, but a new creation. Indeed, in most radical fashion, Paul announces not only that it no longer matters, but that it's now exposed to sin. All escape routes have shut down. There is nothing to be done now. Just listen. That's the grace that's come to us in this gospel. And it's that grace that brings us peace. What keeps us from that peace? Sin without and sin within. The sins that are worked against us and the sins that are committed by us. There's a TED Talk you might want to listen to someday. It's by a paramedic who's kind of after about 20 years of being a paramedic, realized that some of the people who are in his truck as they are dying 
reflect a certain number of key themes that he's noticed over his time. And one of them is, as they are dying, they look into his eyes and wonder, can I be forgiven? Now, some might say to that paramedic and have, dude, it's not time for you to be a pastor. It's time for you to charge those paddles to 220. But at least he's realizing and noticing that what's so fundamental to us, what's so relevant to our condition is that we want to know, is our sin and error covered? And Paul has come to say to us, in this gospel, I have news of that and reason for you to believe it. Yes, relevant. Part of a larger plan. How can that belief, though, have the slightest credibility? Yes, I want peace. Yes, I would like to believe that it's free. And yes, I would like to believe that that grace comes to us in the form of forgiveness here in and here out. But why should I believe that's true? Because it's tied to a moment in history where power showed its face. Power in a resurrection. If there's no resurrection, folks, you and I know, and so does Paul, that we're to be pitied. We're fools. You should have slept in. But if that happened, oh, how relevant our talk of peace and grace through faith makes sense. That's why it's relevant. This news is legitimately considered to be free and freeing because it is unequivocally divine and it is eminently relevant. But that leaves me one last thing to say about it. It is also utterly unique. Most of this passage, as you probably heard, is Paul doing this, wringing his hands, Twice, he says, I'm astonished. Why are you deserting the one who's called you? Why are you giving up the ship? He is saying, there are people who are proffering to the churches of Galatia a different version of the gospel. And he's saying, there is no different version. The gospel is not many. The gospel is one. There is one voice, one message one truth and you heard it and you bought into it and you embraced it and you rejoiced in it and now you were thinking "Mm, maybe i shouldn't have and paul is saying look what you're doing is dangerous as dangerous as if i put on an imaginary table here a glass of water and a glass of clorox and i let a four-year-old walk by unattended they look almost essentially the same One will nourish, the other will destroy. And Paul is saying it is that divergent, the two versions of the gospel you've been given. One will nourish, one will be toxic. And why? Why would he think that? The picture that you're about to see is a guy named Hiro Onoda. He was commissioned to be an intelligence agent for the Japanese army in World War II in 1941. And he was commissioned and stationed in Lubang, Philippines. And there he served. This picture was taken on March 9th, 1974. The day he turned over his sidearm to his commanding officer. Why 1974? Because for 29 years, he wasn't aware that World War II had ended. And for 29 years all alone as a recon officer on one of those archipelagic islands of the the Philippines. He thought the war was still going on and he stayed low and he made reports and he looked for enemy combatants, but he didn't know the war was already concluded. A war he couldn't win. And for almost 30 years of his life, he fought a battle that was already over. Here's the deal, folks. You can spend a lot longer than 30 years 
fighting for something, fighting a battle that was already concluded. And Paul is out to tell us that there was a war, there was a battle, and there was a victory, and it had nothing to do with you, and it's already been concluded. And therefore, you have a choice in this life. You can either think that this life is all about fighting to obtain some sort of inner peace, a kind of favor that you might rest in because you have fought for it, or you can fight to be faithful in response to a favor already obtained. And those are two ways to live. And they're as divergent as they could be. And the gospel is here to tell us, I've come to bring you a gospel message that's free, whereby you already have that favor. And now your fight is to be faithful and thankful. What do you do with this? Just these first nine verses, I'll give you three really quick opportunities to respond that that are not something you respond to like tomorrow but maybe something you respond to over the course of the whole series if this message is divine then would it be so nuts if maybe you read the book of galatians every day for a while or maybe three days a week just to sort of begin to internalize it just to become so familiar with it that it's like it starts to it starts to simmer in that passive time of your brain's working like it's not just something that's like on your checklist for also like buy toilet paper, read Galatians. Like maybe it's on a different plane. If what Paul has for us is in fact divine, then maybe it's worthy of attention that we might not otherwise give it. And I'm not here to upset the apple cart of how you might already be reading scripture on a regular basis, but would it be so nuts if you maybe read it? It'll take you about 20 minutes a day. Just, just read it. Not even try to, try to make heads or tails of it. Just read it. What if? If it's divine, it's worth the time. Secondly, if it's eminently relevant, then in what we'll read in Galatians and preach through is always grist for good prayer. Here's a creative way for you to respond in prayer. I wonder if you would write out your prayers in response to what you read and you send them to me. Whether you want me to know it's you or you want to do it anonymously, you can put it in a sealed envelope. I will not dust for prints. But what if you just wrote out your prayers and and not even prayers that say, I get this, but maybe like, I have no idea what you mean. And I really have a hard time believing this. What if you wrote out your prayers and what if enough of you did that? We, we compiled something. What if kids, you, you, you drew something or, or you wrote a story. What if we let this book prompt something expressive? I'm, I'm told that you people are expressive. Well, prove it to me. What if over the next 13 weeks, you started sending me your prayers? And we compiled them if there was enough of it. I don't know. If it's relevant, then it's relevant for our prayer. Finally, if it is utterly unique, then would it be so wrong that you might be challenged to by the end of this series in April to be able to offer your own briefest, simplest explanation of what is this gospel that's utterly unique? But with specific terms in mind. Because all of you know someone who has a really good argument for why they don't believe. And I wonder if you might compose an explanation of the gospel that speaks in their terms, that answers their argument, even poorly. Because the way we understand things is by putting them to paper, and the way we really understand them is by putting them to paper in response to those who would just as soon roll their eyes and think of you. Oh, Friends, I want to break free, and I think that Paul means for us to break free too. And I think by these ways, maybe he will by his spirit do so a little bit in our midst.
In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.